G'day, you're listening to Shore Walker on Reports, a podcast about creating better public reports. We talk with experts about how to create these documents that explain complex issues to a wide audience. You may be in government, in a non-government organisation or in a business, but if you create public reports, this podcast may be for you. The podcast comes from Australian editorial consulting firm Shawwalker DMS, which helps organisations to make reports better. This episode of Shawwalker on Reports takes a stab at answering an old question. How do you write so that people will want to read what you have written? That is, how do you write readably and memorably? But first, let's ask another more specific question. For reports, how much does memorable language matter? And we can answer that second question right away. For reports, clear and memorable language matters a lot. It matters not just because it improves your communication, but also because it improves your thinking. By aiming to write clearly and memorably, we can improve the entire shape of reports. We can give reports more impact. In this episode, I aim to show that that's true. So in this episode, we'll hear from a world-famous philosopher of communications, Deirdre McCluskey, from independent economist and innovation expert Nicholas Gruen, from former Australian Productivity Commission Chief Gary Banks, from journalist and editor Peter Martin, and from another well-known Australian economist, Saul Eslake. All of them have the same message. If people are going to take up your message, your first need is to get their attention, and then you need to make them remember some of what you've said. Now, getting people's attention and having them remember what you've said That may not seem like a very high bar, and yet in practice, most people find it surprisingly hard. We mostly overestimate how much attention people are paying to us, and we mostly overestimate how much they remember of what we say to them. Professor Deirdre McCluskey has been a professor of economics, of English, communication, philosophy, history and classics at universities in both the United States and the Netherlands. And when I interviewed Deirdre McCluskey recently, she reminded me of how hard it is to get people to remember what you're saying. In fact, when she writes for academic audiences, she tries first just to keep readers awake. Yeah, just surely awake. I had a, I had a, a wonderful colleague in the history department at the University of Iowa, Bill Adelot. Like me, was a, a British economic, a British historian. <laughs> and Bill said, the big thing in scholarship is to keep awake. <laughs> he said, if you, if you're going to be a scholar, you're going to have to read a lot of boring things, so you've got to learn how to stay awake, and so vice versa. You got to, you can't bore people. Not, you know, that seems an awfully harsh standard for some kid who doesn't doesn't know writing very well. But you got to keep them awake. So, try to write in the liveliest way you can find. Once you're satisfied, your audience won't doze off then you need to try to say things in ways that they will understand. 
Peter Martin is business and economics editor of the online publication The Conversation, and he's a former long-time ABC economics correspondent. Like Deirdre McCluskey, he is always conscious of the need to make what he's writing more interesting. But an even more important task, Martin points out, is to help audiences to understand what's going on. Being boring isn't the worst crime. <laughs> Actually, um, you could be boring because the material might be intrinsically boring, um, and that's fair enough. I, I think the crime is not making it as clear as you as clear as is possible. When I edit things for the conversation, I don't change what people are saying, of course, um, but I actually probably change every sentence. Um, not even the words in the sentence, often just the order the words are arranged in, uh, to sort of make a sentence sing. I, I was doing something this morning that uh, referred to um, a decrease in interest rates or an increase in interest rates on the part of the Reserve Bank, and I changed it to will cut interest rates or will increase them. That that's much more evocative. Um, and so on every, in every occasion you can, not necessarily with changing the content, you can make it clearer in the sense that it grabs people more. Anyone who's uh, been to you know an English class or, or communication school knows that active words, these are verbs, um, are much better than nouns. So you don't say, I have great affection for you. You say, I love you. Um, uh, so you should make something as clear as you can. If it needs to include uh, a lot of facts, well, it just has to. Um, people like me like reports that are, that are boring because my job is translating them into something that's more interesting. But um, you, you often can improve the words uh to make things clear. And often there's a lot of stuff you can relegate to footnotes or to links to, to something else. To write like this requires not just a set of rules, but a mindset. You need to start focusing as often as you can on how you can simplify and clarify and make more vivid the things you want to say. Peter Martin again. Uh, frankly, in, in my view, and I'm an extremist on this, um, and I realise not everyone is skilled in this area, it is a crime to communicate any less clearly than is possible. When I was talking earlier about how you can change sentences to make them clearer, for someone not to do that is really, really bad. The, in a way, the, the most precious resource we've got is time. Now, obviously, it takes time to do that, but I'm referring to the the time of the reader, um, I suppose, you know, the other precious resource is, you know, sort of their mental load. So if you can ease their mental load, if you can make it quicker and easier to absorb, you're doing, uh, you know, whatever it is you're working for, a real service. My wife and I listened to the ABC News at night in bed at 10pm. We both used to work for ABC News. And you should hear us. It's hilarious. We're, uh, we're like, you know, those two uh, pensioners in the uh, balcony in the Muppets saying, why did they say it that way? They could have said it that way. It would have been so much clearer. 
you know, who's working there these days? And um, why did they have that story and then that story instead of that one, which could link to it? Can't anyone do these things anymore? So I'm a bit of an extremist about this. But, uh, you know, so long as you've got the time, there's really no reason why you can't use it to make something clearer because you're doing the readers, even if they're readers who are into the field, you're doing them a service. And, and you might get readers then who aren't interested in the field. You know, people who aren't into astronomy might then uh, uh, actually, uh, you know, who aren't the intended audience, might then be able to read it, you know. And wouldn't that be great? You might get a few more people interested in the field. Economist and public policy expert Nicholas Gruen has a slightly different obsession, saying what you mean to say. Nick has worked for senior federal government ministers under Prime Minister Bob Hawke and Prime Minister Paul Keating, as well as for the Productivity Commission and the Business Council of Australia. He chaired the 2009 Web 2.0 Task Force and now runs an economics consultancy, Lateral Economics. In all these roles and others, he has helped to write quite a few reports. You've been very clear about your guiding principles in writing reports and Perhaps the most important of those is to be clear. You quote Orwell, um, say things as simply as possible and strip back the euphemism. Yeah, yeah. Um, express yourself in the active tense. If you say something is happening, if possible, say who's making it happen. If something is being done, be direct and say who is doing it. And one of the great, well, this reads better. It's much easier to read. It goes into your brain much better. But there's another really big benefit, which is, as Orwell says, if you strip your language, if you make your language direct and active and you don't allow yourself to use cliches and euphemisms, you find that it's harder to talk bullshit. And bullshit is a major problem for reports everywhere. There is bullshit all over the place. <laughs> and this is a way, and so, and often we don't know that we're, where where we're drifting into it when people say things like moving forward instead of in the future um there are there's a there's a very gentle slope into bullshit that begins with euphemisms and phrases that people are starting to use right now for no apparent reason we're going to sing from the same hymn sheet all these kinds of things and they don't do any great harm but they they lull you into choosing words and ways of putting things that are not your own and that robs you of the that that robs your thought of your own agency in a very subtle way that's um quite hard to notice unless you make a point of noticing it Saul Eslake has worked as chief economist for companies including National Mutual the ANZ Bank and Bank of America Merrill Lynch and he now runs his own consultancy firm Saul's ability to speak clearly about economics has made him a fixture in Australian media and the corporate world for more than three decades. He believes very strongly that reports for public consumption have to be able to be understood by a wide range of people. Here Saul talks about the influence that good communicators can have and gives his take on where reports succeed in using clear and lively language. Where they go well is where they minimise the use of 
jargon and um, complex, unintelligible to ordinary folk um, para sentences and paragraphs that are hard not only for ordinary people to understand but hard for journalists to turn into language that ordinary people can understand, which is, you know, as I would understand it, part of a journalist's job, maybe not the most important part of it, but part of what journalists do. Um, and, you know, while there will be instances where the use of uh, or reference to complex work, you know, I think, for example, reports that the IPCC has written about climate change issues, you know, um, are discussing very complex matters and to be credible with scientists, which is important, have to be written in a way with all sorts of caveats and you know, um, standard deviations around means and things like that, that can be very difficult for ordinary people to understand. Um, I think in those circumstances where the use of complex technical language and argument is unavoidable for reasons of credibility with other experts, that that needs to be put in a separate volume or a separate part of the report from those parts that are addressed to politicians, members of parliament, journalists and the general public. And that isn't always done. Um, I think reports that are written by judges usually manage to do that fairly well. Um, reports that are written by lawyers who are not judges don't always succeed in doing that. And reports that are written by other exports who are not necessarily accustomed to defending their opinions in the face of challenges from others, which you know barristers do for a living. Um, sometimes they struggle with. Sometimes they don't. I mean, uh, one of the other really well-written reports, incidentally, that I um, I could have mentioned before, and, um, is an example of someone writing in a field that's not their primary expertise was the report that John Nevenhausen wrote to the Kane government about liquor law deregulation, licensing deregulation. Now, this was about the law, and Nevenhausen was an economist. But that was, as I recollect, a report that was about law reform, not written by a lawyer, that was written incredibly persuasively and ultimately did a great deal of good in terms of reforming Victoria's extraordinarily arcane and complex liquor licensing laws in the late 1980s. So it can be done, um, but I think it takes people with particular talent and determination in order to do it. Saul's clearly right here. Not every expert has the talent and determination to make their writing clear and lively. And that matters, even to other experts. A shrewd economist called Ian McFarlane ended up running Australia's central bank for a decade. McFarlane once admitted to me that he didn't read the middle sections of most economic research because he could no longer follow the mathematics. At the time he told me that, he was research manager of the Reserve Bank. It underlines the point that even people with formal training and professional responsibilities don't necessarily want to struggle through unclear explanations. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I really struggle to read a lot of academic economic research. 
you know, in say the premier journal of the Economic Society of, the Australia, uh, of Australia, the um, Economic Record. I mean, I can't read more than half the article. Oh, understand more than half the articles in there. You know, that's partly because I don't have the training in econometrics that enables me to understand a lot of what passes for you know um, path-breaking academic economic research these days. Um, Quite often, it's on topics in which I have no interest as well. But um, a lot of it's just really poorly written from the point of view of reaching a wide audience. Now, in many cases, of course, you know, academic economists are not writing for a wide audience. They're writing for other academic economists, which is a very narrow audience. And you know, I often, when I was asked by people studying economics or having just graduated in economics, what they should do and could they come and work for me when I was working for ANZ or something, I would often say to them that during your university degree, you are taught how to write about economics for academic economists because they're the people who mark your exams. But unless you want to be an academic economist yourself, that's a skill you will never need again. Saul Earthlake has spent much of his life communicating with the public almost daily, but he still values precision in writing just as he clearly values precision in speaking. He has quoted the Financial Times journalist Michael Skipinder, who writes that a communicator who does not know where an apostrophe goes is like a racing driver who does not know what a dipstick is. The racing driver can still do the job without that knowledge, but it's kind of an embarrassing gap, and you do start to wonder how good a driver he'll turn out to be. Most people who write things have at least one opportunity to you know, review what they've written before anyone else reads it. And, you know, in that case, if there are egregious grammatical errors or misuse of words, well, you know, that casts some real doubt on whether, particularly if it's a subject about which you don't know very much, and your presumption is that the person who's writing your reading is meant to know something about it. If it's really badly written, I'm going to have second thoughts about that. Um, it's even more obvious when people are speaking because when you speak, you don't have the opportunity to review what you have said before someone hears it. And so if I have to listen to someone who can't string 10 words together without four of them being like, for example, I'm going to switch off after about five minutes after that, after I've counted about 50 likes, you know, I've lost interest. And, you know, ditto if um, whoever I'm listening to has various other vocal tics or fry that distract me from the substance of what he or she's trying to say, you know, uh, they've lost me. But normally in writing, because you do have the opportunity to review it yourself and you usually have the opportunity to show it to someone else before it goes to its intended audiences, there's less excuses for that sort of thing, I think. Obviously, we count Saul as an enthusiast for clear communication. But does clear communication with the public matter in the real world? Saul Eslake says he has seen its real-world value. We just heard him recount how a powerful and clear report changed Victoria's liquor laws. But that's not the only place he's seen well-written work make a difference. I asked Saul how he came to realise clear and lively writing mattered. Partly by seeing outside of the public service once I left examples of it being done very poorly 
and what the consequences of those were. People would put a lot of their own intellectual effort and time into writing something that disappeared without trace if people couldn't understand it. I mean, it could also disappear without trace if it was recommending something that very powerful vested interests were determined to prevent happening. Um, but I suppose you wouldn't feel quite as aggrieved about that or you'd feel a bit aggrieved about it for a different set of reasons than if it failed because your own writing was the main reason for it. Saul notes that the Australian government's leading economic institutions have traditionally done well at teaching people how to write advice to leaders. One of the reasons why I used to recommend that young aspiring economists go and work for Treasury or the Reserve Bank or some institution like that for a while was you know, partly because of the insights working there would give them into how economic policy is made, which is a very useful thing if you want to do the kind of job I subsequently did, but also because the Reserve Bank and Treasury are very good at teaching newly minted economists how to write about economics for people who are not economists, which of course includes treasurers, who are generally speaking not economists. And uh, whether they do it deliberately or through osmosis as it was the case during the Stone Age. You know, I, I don't know now, um, but that's a skill you don't learn at university, and you can learn in in the public service. I mean, you certainly could during my day. Whether you can as much now, I don't know. Um, but uh, it's a skill that a lot of people don't have. Another voice for the real world value of clear communications is Gary Banks. For 15 years to 2012, Gary Banks ran Australia's Productivity Commission, which is an independent advisor to Australia's federal government on economic, social and environmental issues. Its primary instrument of advice is reports. So, over the years, the Productivity Commission has worked out a process for making sure those reports speak clearly to their audiences, both to policymakers and to the broader public. Here's Gary Banks talking about how clearer and more pointed language helped to preserve the institution that he ran. When I joined the Productivity Commission, as it's when I was appointed uh, chairman, there was an election due. If Labor had won the election, they were going to abolish the organisation. So I was appointed in May and the election was in November and I could have been out of a job by December. So I came into that role thinking you know, this organisation has to be seen to be helpful and influential. And one of the things I first saw that was a bit problematic is some of the language we used. And another was that, you know, some of the the messages, the key messages coming out of the studies was a bit lost, you know. But it wasn't absent because I think the Commission's always been quite good at that. But we worked harder on that. And, and our early discussion about summaries and key points is, is sort of overlaps with that. So, you know, it really is important that you don't spend all your time doing a big, huge body of work and not enough time thinking about what really matters in this body of work in terms of influence and, and, and um, execution of policy. Um, um, and again, as we said before, you know, you, you cannot expect, a dis, you know, the ultimate decision maker about a policy or a strategy to be wading through, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of stuff. So you've got to break it down. Banks makes an important point about people. It often takes the involvement of experienced senior staff to liven up a report. Senior staff are the people most likely to understand what the audience is going to need to know 
in order for the report to succeed. In my experience at the Commission, because the Commissioners are much more um, attuned to uh, the environment in which the report will land, they are more conscious of you know, making it appealing and, and compelling if they can be, whereas the people who are writing, doing the first draft of the chapter, are more concerned about getting it right, getting the detail right, making sure it theor- conceptually stands up. And a lot of boring stuff can happen at that level, but, but if, it's, if it's gone through a process of discussion and the, the more senior people involved in the project have been able to exert an influence, then hopefully by the time it comes out, that's been addressed. Leadership of reports teams clearly matters here. Not enough people who lead reports start off by saying this, we must speak clearly and directly in this document. Nick Gruen points out that this leaves clarity as a low priority in many reports, to the point where outsiders often can't really read and absorb what a report says. Yes, absolutely. And not only that, but it means that I can't read most government reports because I don't know what they say. Uh, so they're so laden with cliches and uh, spin. So you will say, you know, um, the, the the government improved or enhanced some policy. Well, well, that's for other people to decide. Uh, tell us what you did with the policy. Tell us, you know, did you fund it more? Did you fund it less? Uh, what if you were seeking to enhance a particular thing, let's say it's responsiveness, um, uh, then tell us something about the texture of those changes and give us a reason to believe that you're not just saying that. Uh, because unfortunately, yeah, we're just beset with this tendency of human beings when they hear that something's been done, they sort of think it has been done. Uh, but if you give it a texture, if you say how you did something and and ideally say a little bit more to sort of prove your point, like we decided to become more, it, it was important in this phase of the program for it to become more responsive and uh, customer satisfaction was taken from 35% to 60% during this period. It's just a sort of a simple, it's, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a fact. It's a thing which helps to create a picture that, that is independent of your nice words. So far in this podcast, we've heard our experts talk about making reports and other written documents more interesting. But these experts often say something else too. By disciplining yourself to express ideas clearly... You won't just be more interesting, your ideas will actually be better too. This idea is not new. In the past century, it has been most famously associated with the author George Orwell. He wrote Animal Farm in 1984, but some writers still remember him just as much for his classic essay, Politics and the English Language. In that essay, he makes the point that bad writing and bad thinking tend to go together. Do one, and you'll be forced to do the other too. Here's how Orwell puts it in Politics and the English Language, read here by Jonathan Streeter. A man may take to drink because he feels himself to be a failure, 
and then fail all the more completely because he drinks. It is rather the same thing that is happening to the English language. It becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish, but the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. The point is that the process is reversible. Modern English, especially written English, is full of bad habits which spread by imitation and which can be avoided if one is willing to take the necessary trouble. If one gets rid of these habits, one can think more clearly. If one gets rid of these habits, one can think more clearly. In the rest of this episode, we'll return often to this theme of Orwell's clear and lively writing pushes you towards clear and lively thought. Saul Eslake holds this view strongly. He's found muddled thought is a major cause of muddled language. People put their thoughts down on paper before they really know what they think, and then they fail to use the writing process to figure out what their true thoughts are. I think I was counselled by mentors of mine in the past along these lines that actually trying to write out what you think is a useful discipline for clarifying what you think. And if you can't do that, then there's probably a good chance that what you think has got some flaw in it. And so, you know, writing about something, or not everyone does this, I suppose, but if you're going to be speaking rather than thinking, you know, running through what you're going to say in your head before you say it and asking yourself, does this make sense to me? Or, you know, if I was trying to have this conversation with someone who might not be an expert in the field, but is nonetheless an intelligent person, you know, if I can't explain it to this person, well, I'm probably not going to convince the audience either that I know what I'm talking about or that if I can at least get them to accept that I know what I'm talking about, that what I'm saying might actually be of some relevance to them. Nick Gruen holds a similar view to Saul Eslake on this. Figure out what you can say that will have some real value to the audience, and that will improve what you write. Better still, you'll have better ideas that provide the reader with more lasting value, and so you won't produce a document that everyone sees as a waste of their time. Nick regrets that more and more government documents are like that, and that might include one of his own. Take this as an example um, this is rather countercultural, but one of the, the only regret I can think of, and maybe it's not a regret, it's just a sort of a, it could have been different. I'm not sure it would have been better, but one possible regret I have about the Government 2.0 Task Force is that everybody wanted to give it a propaganda name, and it ended up with a propaganda name which was Engage. We were trying to say this is our one word for government, engage. Now, I did want to say that, and it's even possible that I was the guy who came up with the propaganda name. But I actually think that we're so swamped in propaganda that there's something that, that before the age of propaganda, and I can even I can even detail it where it happened in Australian government at the top level um, was between 19... 90 and 1991, because the last economic statement that that Bob Hawke made, it was an, a small economic stimulus made in 1990, and it was called, it was an October 1990 statement, and I may have the date wrong, but, um, it, but its name was Economic Statement by the Prime Minister, October 1990. 
And then when Paul Keating had put the sword through him, as he liked to put it colourfully, and become the Prime Minister, we all I was on staff at that point, and we all put together this slightly bigger economic um, uh, economic stimulus, and it had a propaganda name, and it was called One Nation. Now, for Australians who are tuning into this, they'll they'll um, find that quite amusing. I used to wander around the uh, corridors of Parliament House calling it Ein Reich, but that was a moment in which, and now everything is named. You know, we named the invasion of Iraq. Uh, and Kuwait, we 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 generate these these propaganda names for things rather than just saying what's happening and letting other people decide the extent to which they're good or they're bad or what they represent and so on. Um, so anyway, I see that as just endlessly replicated through government reports. This constant compulsion to say things are good. And that creates all sorts of problems when you want to say that certain things are bad, which also happens in government reports, but uh, uh, it's everyone's tiptoeing around. What tends to happen is that everyone amps up the rhetoric and in the process ends up with less and less to say. So one of the things that you'll find or I've found when dealing with lots of groups and particularly business groups is that everyone says as if they're delivering themselves of great wisdom, they say, we need a vision. Now, every vision of any magnitude for society always says three things, which is we want a strong economy, a strong society, and a strong environment. But everybody says, oh, no, we need a new vision, and then we can all follow the vision. And so and, and, and what those things that people love to talk about, these visions, is that's the rhetoric. That's all the things that make us feel good about what we've said, that make us feel that we've seen something in, something important and we're bringing it about when we're actually not. We're just engaging in, in nice words. Um, so I would argue that if you really want to cut through and I, you know, like I can't give you a for most reports just don't cut through because an awful lot of reports are commissioned by people who don't know what to do and will not have any strong commitment to doing anything if it's difficult when they get the report back. So that that's that's to be taken as background. But if you are clear, if you are clear in your mind and you're clear in your writing, that will people will be shocked by that and they won't even often know that they're shocked, they'll, they'll, but they'll have a different kind of experience to the sort of experience they have when they read government reports. And that will have, the, the, that gives you the best chance of impact that I can think of in a massively overcrowded market. And that brings us back to where we started, getting people's attention and having them remember what you've said. Now, that may not seem like a very high bar, and yet in practice, most people find it surprisingly hard. You need the writing in your report to be clear and lively. And the best way to do that is to have an honest conversation with your readers about the problem you're addressing. That's never easy, but it does stand a chance of paying off.
Now, you've found this podcast useful enough, or at least interesting enough, to make it all the way to this sign-off. So, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast software. And if you like what you've heard, you can hire a firm which understands these ideas. I'm David Walker and I run Australian editorial consulting firm Shawwalker DMS. Shawwalker DMS produced this podcast and we help organisations to make reports better. You can find more ideas like these at our website, shawwalker.net. And if you need to improve the quality of your reports or other media, contact us through the contact form at shawwalker.net. Take care.